0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Good morning. Welcome to AM. I'm Sabra Lane coming to you from Nipaluna, Hobart. The federal government's examining price caps on gas and coal to drive down power prices, but putting them in place won't be easy. Some state governments are pushing back, particularly on a cap coal price and the suggestion that they'd have to implement it. Heavy industrial power users say a solution is quickly needed, but the coal sector argues a price cap won't solve anything. Here's political reporter Tom Lowry.
2: Everyone is familiar with energy prices going up, but for some in heavy industry, the price shocks are becoming too much to take.
0: One of our members has a gas contract that ceases as of the end of December this year, and the best price that they've been quoted is a 345% increase year on year.
2: Brett Lawrence is the head of the Australian Foundry Institute, representing metal casting businesses across the country. It's a sector with an enormous demand for gas and electricity.
0: That for many businesses will be uh, arguably the death knell because you just can't uh, afford to pass that through to your customers.
2: The federal government has been working for weeks on a plan to intervene in the energy sector to try and contain prices that are forecast to soar. A plan has been promised by Christmas and will be thrashed out at a national cabinet meeting on Wednesday. Details are still fluid, but the government has been looking at placing price caps on both gas and coal. It's the price cap on coal that's causing concern among the states and the resources industry is worried too. Here's Stephen Galilee from the New South Wales Minerals Council. The imposition of a price cap is going to have little or no impact in the end on electricity prices in our view. He says the move would come with some significant consequences. It's going to result in some significant compensation claims. It's going to cost the New South Wales government royalties. It may put One or two producers out of business, it may force mines to operate at a loss at a time when our production costs are going up as well. The Queensland government has been pushing back on talk of a price cap. A number of the state's coal-fired generators are owned by the state government, and the government has been using those profits to provide rebates to households. It's concerned what a cap might do for that policy, which it argues is working well. The New South Wales government is more supportive, but wants the federal government imposing the price cap, not the states. Here's the New South Wales Treasurer, Matt Keane, on Sky News. This is a national problem that requires a national solution. You can't have every state and territory going
0: off and doing their own thing.
2: There's hope within federal government ranks that some of this can be ironed out at National Cabinet and the path forward will be clearer midweek. And there's an awareness that there's no easy option, but doing nothing is not an option either. Brett Lawrence says those staring at soaring energy bills are hanging out for some detail.
0: I think uh, everyone will breathe a sigh of relief, to be honest.
1: And Brett Lawrence is from the Australian Foundry Institute and our reporter, Tom Lowry. The federal budget was only handed down six weeks ago, but already it's billions of dollars better off than what the Treasury Department forecast. In fact, independent economist Chris Richardson thinks the budget might even be balanced next year or possibly posting a small surplus. Why? It's got to do with a boom in commodity prices, but it may not last long. For more on this, I spoke earlier with our senior business correspondent, Peter Ryan. Peter, this is pretty remarkable news. What's it telling us about the strength of Australia's economy? Well,
3: Sabra, despite all the doom and gloom, Australia's economic good fortune continues. And this time of year in the lead up to Christmas, we're normally standing by for the mid-year economic update or Maifo. That's been dumped because of the early October budget. And, of course, we're constantly being told that mantra of being back in the black is history because of the pandemic. But veteran economist Chris Richardson is forecasting, regardless of no Maifo, that there could be the first budget surplus since the global financial crisis, but it's only going to be by a whisker. Thanks to bad news being good news, the war in Ukraine means the world is paying a lot more for Australia's coal, gas and iron ore, meaning more tax revenue for Treasury coffers. Now, it will be a brief surplus as Treasurer Jim Chalmers funds big ticket items like the NDIS, Medicare and Defence. But Chris Richardson says for now, an albeit temporary surplus is reason to celebrate.
4: That's pretty remarkable.
1: You roll back the clock not that long ago. Okay. We had a federal deficit of $186 billion in calendar 2020 as COVID hit. $56 billion, still very large, last calendar year. But 2022, in balance, a genuinely remarkable recovery.
3: How long will that last? Is that just going to be a one-off or an aberration?
1: It is mostly a one-off. It is mostly an aberration. The good news is off the back of things that won't stay around forever. Again, war and inflation have driven highs in prices for stuff that Australia sells to the world, and that's been great for the tax take, but it's not a forever thing. What does look like hanging around uh, for longer is that spending on social services and on defence. Having said that, the Australian economy uh, in many ways has been uh, Monty Python's black night, only a scratch thus far. That's economist Chris Richardson. And Peter, we'll get an official update on the health of the economy later this week. Will that be in tune with Chris Richardson's optimism about a brief surplus?
3: Sabra, the national accounts are out on Wednesday and that theme of a still resilient economy looks like continuing economic growth or GDP in the most recent quarter of 0.7 of 1%, making solid growth of 3.1% over the year. But the economy is likely to slow from there as aggressive interest rate rises by consumer spending falls and borrowers come off fixed rate mortgages into a higher rates world. The Reserve Bank holds its its final meeting of the year tomorrow, economists see another rate rise of a quarter of a percentage point, taking the cash rate back up to a decade high. The big question is whether signs that inflation might be falling could see the RBA pause or even deliver an early Christmas present and slow its rate hiking strategy into the new year.
1: Peter Ryan there. Medicare no longer works effectively and needs a major overhaul, according to the Grattan Institute. The think tanks published a report suggesting one way to do that, revamping the way GPs work and how they're paid. And in tackling that, it argues Australia can turn the tide against the rising incidence of chronic disease and make sure there's fairer access to health care. But the body representing GPs
4: is not convinced, as Petty Tims reports. Ewan McPhee is run off his feet as one of only a handful of GPs in the remote Queensland town of Emerald. It's
5: just the number of patients wanting to be seen by a doctor and our ability to respond to that and see them in a timely manner.
4: Dr. McPhee's big concern is not being able to meet the needs of his patients, many of whom are elderly, suffer from chronic health conditions, and poor mental health.
5: A routine appointment for me takes three months to get in. I rarely am able to fit in urgent patients. He's
4: big wish is more support for general practice and primary care so patients don't end up in hospital with problems that could have been prevented.
5: This is about reinvestment in infrastructure for general practices, reinvestment in the nurses and the allied health professionals and the systems that underpin general practices.
4: It's one of many ideas public health experts have put forward to help GPs deal with the current healthcare challenges. We really need to make general practice more of a team sport. And that needs real change to funding and regulation. Peter Braden is from the independent think tank, the Grattan Institute, which has released a report on how to strengthen general practice. The report says that requires a huge overhaul of Medicare a system which hasn't kept up with modern health needs.
5: So we're suggesting that the government should break through the deadlock by investing a 1,000 new roles to support GPs in areas where the greatest need is.
4: Peter Braden says that includes integrating allied health workers like physiotherapists, pharmacists and nurses. The report suggests changing the funding model to reflect that team-based care and reduce reliance on the current fee-for-service approach. It gives GPs the incentive to churn. It it focuses on... Uh, speed instead of need. But the Royal Australian College of General Practitioners doesn't like these ideas. College President Dr Nicole Higgins is worried delegating care to other health workers would undermine a GP's relationship with their patients and compromise their bottom line. The
5: Grattan report says that that money that would usually be going to a general practice will go to a primary health network. For them to control and manage, that is something that the RACGP members have a great deal of concern about.
4: The Grattan report acknowledges the federal government has set aside $250 million a year to fix Medicare and suggests the money could go towards funding these recommendations. But Dr Higgins says it's not nearly enough.
5: That's $10 per Australian. It's not an adequate investment for the model that's being proposed.
4: The ABC has approached the Federal Health Minister for a response to the report. That report by Penny Timms and Catherine Gregory.
1: A gladiator pit, a war zone and a kindergarten for the adult prison. These are just some of the descriptions we've heard over the past year for Tasmania's sole youth detention centre. And while the state government's promised to close it within two years following an inquiry, concerns linger about the treatment of children who are still inside. Lucy MacDonald reports.
6: When the ABC first spoke to a 17 year old detainee who we'll call Oliver, he described the effects of being isolated.
0: We're basically just in our rooms, sometimes up to 23 hours a day.
6: That's an actor, not Oliver's real voice. But the teenager told us that staff shortages and rolling lockdowns were why he was being kept in his room at the Ashley Youth Detention Centre.
0: It drives you crazy sometimes because you're just in there. You're in a tiny room with a toilet, shower and bed and a TV. We're not getting any school.
6: Conditions have improved a little since then. Oliver's now out of his room for about eight hours a day, but he's rarely getting to do any schoolwork. And his mum, Naomi, says he talks about the adult prison, Risdon as though it may be part of his future. We've altered her voice slightly for privacy reasons.
0: I'm so frightened that next to when my son turns 18 that he will end up there if something something huge doesn't change.
6: Naomi says she accepts her son has done the wrong thing and she wants him to get the help he needs. But she believes Ashley is making him worse.
0: His sanity has been wasted spending time in there with absolutely no help whatsoever. The staff shortages are, are, are ridiculous. You're not learning any new skills to cope and stop and, and stay away from criminal activity when you get out.
6: The detention centre has spent much of this year in the headlines. Along with rolling lockdowns, more than 100 former detainees have launched a class action against the state in the Supreme Court, alleging abuse at the hands of the institution. Meanwhile, the Commission of Inquiry into Child Sexual Abuse has aired allegations of invasive strip searches, beatings, shredded documents and gang rapes. If I was a child arriving there for the first time, I, I just can't imagine how terrifying that would be. Alicia worked at Ashley as a clinical practice consultant for six months. She said she witnessed behaviour towards children that seriously concerned her. They're the most vulnerable kids you could find and it always felt quite inhumane that I got to drive away and leave at the end of each day and they had to be locked in their cells. In a statement, a spokeswoman for the Department of Education, Children and Young People, says the centre is trying to recruit more staff, with nine starting this week. The Tasmanian government has also committed to closing the centre by the end of 2024, and recently released plans to build five new facilities with a focus on prevention rather than punishment. But mum Naomi says none of that will help children like Oliver.
0: i just worried for his future, and his age when age for it. Going be late
1: if we don't do something now. And that's Naomi, whose son is in Tasmania's Ashley Youth Detention Centre. Lucy Macdonald reporting there. The Iranian regime is denying reports it's abolished the controversial morality police, which enforces the country's strict Islamic dress code. Mass protests have been staged across Iran since September, after the death in custody of Masa Amini, who'd been arrested by the morality pro- police. If the squad has been shut down, it'd signal a major victory for demonstrators. Our Middle East correspondent is Alison Horn.
7: What we know is that the Attorney-General was giving a speech across the weekend where he was asked by an attendee about the functions of the Morality Police, to which he replied, and I'm translating this for you, that the guidance patrol has nothing to do with the judiciary. And that it was closed from the same authority where it was established. Now, this is the line that has provided this sort of ambiguity. Some media have taken this to mean that the morality police has been abolished. Others are sort of saying, "Well, that's not what he has said there. What he's actually talking about is that the operations have been temporarily shut down, and it is true that the morality police have been largely inactive and a little bit invisible almost since September 16, which was the day that Massa Amini was killed and that these protests started to be staged across the country. So it's still a little unclear what the operations." of the morality police are at the moment, but I think it is probably too far to go to say that they've been abolished. Certainly their presence has been reduced. Iranian state TV, which is, you know, the communication arm of the regime, has... Uh, put a statement out today saying that there's no official in the Islamic Republic that's confirmed the closure of the morality police and that basically this is foreign media taking these words and assuming that the issues of, you know, wearing the hijab and chastity and its impact on the East recent unrest is now over. You know, there's been no statement from the President and the Interior Ministry, which is in charge of the morality police, has also not said that the morality police has been abolished. So I think we need to take these sort of statements um, with a little bit of caution.
1: What does it mean for the protesters? Will this have ramifications for them?
7: If it does indeed turn out that the morality police has been abolished, that would be hugely significant for them. This has been one of the key cornerstones of what they've been fighting for, for their freedom, for the ability to wear what they want, to not have their actions and their movements scrutinized in a way that isn't done in other parts of the world. But I don't think that it's going to actually end like that because, you know, there have been two months now of these incredibly intense, and deadly scenes that we've all been witnessing across the country. And to this point, there's been absolutely no concessions given by the regime, and that gives you an indication of how passionately they are committed to imposing these dress codes on women. There is some suggestion by some commentators that this, this information about the possible abolishment of the morality code is actually propaganda that's being spread by forces from within Iran to try and calm down the protests
1: Alison Horn reporting there. In a remote corner of Western Australia, construction started on the world's largest radio telescope. Astronomers say once finished, the Square Kilometre Array Observatory will be able to search the stars for signals of intelligent life and listen back to the dawn of the universe. John Daly prepared this report. Scientists are trying to answer some of the fundamental questions about the universe.
0: One of humanity's biggest science projects is taking shape in WA's vast and remote Murchison region. Construction is starting on the world's largest radio telescope, made up of 130,000 Christmas tree-shaped antennas spread out in spiralled arms and capable of picking up cosmic radio waves with unparalleled clarity. It's going to be one of the most sensitive uh, instruments that humanity has ever built. Um, And to put it into perspective, uh, the SKA could detect a mobile phone in the pocket of an astronaut on Mars. That's Dr Danny Price from the International Centre for Radio Astronomy Research at Curtin University. He says the square kilometre array will allow astronomers to pick up some of the earliest radio waves of the universe and search for habitable planets... It'll also help search for intelligent alien life. With technology similar to us, the SKA could detect it. So they could detect the the leakage radiation that was unintentionally sent from their radio and telecommunications networks if they were similar to us on Earth, which is the first telescope sensitive enough to achieve quite an amazing feat like that. All all of the science programs, frankly, uh, can just uh, revolutionize our, our view of the universe. The SKA project is an international effort and the other half of the observatory, made up of 200 dish antennas, is being built in South Africa's remote northern Cape. The site in WA's Murchison is a legislated radio quiet zone and Professor Tara Murphy, head of the University of Sydney's School of Physics, says that silence is vital.
5: So anything on Earth that produces radio frequencies such as radios, computers, cars, aeroplanes, anything at all that has any tech like that in it interferes with our observations. And so we want this telescope to be located as far away as possible from any of those sources of interference. And this site is perfect for that.
0: Professor Murphy visited the site earlier this year.
5: You know, I've worked on this telescope. I've worked on preparing for this telescope for over a decade. It really just blew me away how impressive it is. This is a project... Of unprecedented scale in radio astronomy, and you 're building this telescope, the computing for it, um, and all of the resources that it needs, in the middle of the desert, hundreds of kilometers away from um, the nearest large you know towns or
0: cities and she says the project is also a major achievement for australia
5: so I think the fact that Australia is hosting this and running this and operating this and contributing to this world leading science. Means that it's a really important um, thing, not just for science, but you know, culturally for Australia, that we're part of this and we're leading this.
0: The Square Kilometre Array is planned to be up and running by the end of the decade, helping to answer the universe's greatest unknowns. John Daly
1: reporting there, and that's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Sabra Lane.
4: Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily podcast. As Christmas approaches and temperatures plummet, Ukraine is continually being plunged into darkness as the nation's energy system is hit by Russian missile and drone strikes. Today we touch base again with Olga Polotska, a resident in the capital Kyiv, and we speak to a former energy expert at the US Embassy in Ukraine about the long winter ahead. Look for the ABC News Daily podcast on the ABC Listener.